Good evening. I hope you've had a wonderful day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a great night's sleep with some old familiar stories that you haven't heard in a while. Links to every story can be found in the show notes at our website, bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight we continue our story, The Case of the Gloria Scott, by Arthur Conan Doyle. When did it happen, Doctor? asked Trevor. Almost immediately after you left. Did he recover consciousness? For an instant before the end. Any message for me? Only that the papers were in the back drawer of the Japanese cabinet. My friend ascended with the doctor to the chamber of death, while I remained in the study turning the whole matter over and over in my head, and feeling as somber as ever I had done in my life. What was the past of this Trevor? Pugilist, traveler, and gold digger. And how had he placed himself in the power of this acid-faced seaman? Why, too, could he faint at an allusion to the half-effaced initials upon his arm, and die of fright when he had a letter from Fordingham? Then I remembered that Fordingham was in Hampshire, and that this Mr. Beddoes, whom the seaman had gone to visit and presumably to blackmail, had also been mentioned as living in Hampshire. The letter, then, might either come from Hudson, the seaman, saying that he had betrayed the guilty secret which appeared to exist, or it might come from Beddoes, warning an old confederate that such a betrayal was imminent. So far it seemed clear enough. But then how could this letter be trivial and grotesque, as described by the son? He must have misread it. If so, it must have been one of those ingenious secret codes which mean one thing while they seem to mean another. I must see this letter. If there were a hidden meaning in it, I was confident that I could pluck it forth. For an hour, I sat pondering over it in the gloom, until at last a weeping maid brought in a lamp, and close at her heels came my friend Trevor, pale but composed, but these very papers which lie upon my knee held in his grasp. He sat down opposite to me, drew the lamp to the edge of the table, and handed me a short note scribbled, as you see, upon a single sheet of grey paper. The supply of game for London is going steadily up, it ran. Headkeeper Hudson, we believe, has now been told to receive all orders for flypaper and for preservation of your hen pheasant's life. I dare say my face looked as bewildered as yours did just now when first I reread this message. Then I reread it very carefully. It was evidently as I had thought, and some secret meaning must lie buried in this strange combination of words. Or could it be that there was a prearranged significance to such phrases as flypaper and hen pheasant? Such a meaning would be arbitrary and could not be deduced in any way. And yet I was lulled to believe that this was the case, and the presence of the word Hudson seemed to show that the subject of the message was as I had guessed, and that it was from Beddoes rather than the sailor. I tried it backwards, but the combination life pheasant's hen 
was not encouraging. Then I tried alternate words, but neither the afore nor supply game London promised to throw any light upon it. And then in an instant, the key of the riddle was in my hands, and I saw that every third word, beginning with the first, would give a message which might well drive old Trevor to despair. It was short and terse. The warning, as I now read it out loud, The game is up. Hudson is told all. Fly for your life. Victor Trevor sank his face into his shaking hands. It must be that, I suppose, said he. This is worse than death, for it means disgrace as well. But what is the meaning of these headkeepers and hen pheasants? It means nothing to the message, but it might mean a good deal to us if we had no other means of discovering the sender. You see that he has begun by writing, The game is, and so on. Afterwards, he had to fulfill the prearranged cipher, to fill in any two words in each space. He would naturally use the first words which came to his mind, and if there were so many which referred to sport among them, you may be tolerably sure that he is either an ardent shot or interested in breeding. Do you know anything of this Beddoes? Why, now that you mention it, said he, I remember that my poor father used to have an invitation from him to shoot over his reserves every autumn. Then it is undoubtedly from him that the note comes, said I. It only remains for us to find out what this secret was, which the sailor Hudson seems to have held over the heads of these two wealthy and respected men. Alas, Holmes, I fear that it is one of sin and shame, cried my friend. But from you I shall have no secrets. Here is a statement which was drawn up by my father when he knew that the danger from Hudson had become imminent. I found it in the Japanese cabinet, as he told the doctor. Take it and read it to me, for I have neither the strength nor the courage to do it myself. These are the very papers, Watson, which he handed to me, and I will read them to you, as I read them in the old study that night to him. They are endorsed outside, as you see. Some particulars of the voyage of the bark Gloria Scott, from her leaving Falmouth on the 8th October, 1855, to her destruction in North Lat, 15 degrees 20, west longitude 25 degrees 14, on November 6th. It is the form of a letter, and it runs this way. My dear, dear son, now that approaching disgrace begins to darken the closing years of my life, it is with truth and honesty that I can write that it is not the terror of the law, it is not the loss of my position in the country, nor is it my fall in the eyes of all who have known me which cuts me to the heart. But it is the thought that you should come to blush for me, you who love me and who have seldom, I hope, had reason to do other than respect me. But if the blow falls which is forever hanging over me, then I should wish you to read this, that you may know straight from me how far I have been to blame. On the other hand, if all should go well, which may kind God Almighty grant, then if by any chance this paper should be still undestroyed and should fall into your hands, I conjure you by all you hold sacred 
by the memory of your dear mother, and by the love which had been between us, to hurl it into the fire and to never give one thought to it again. If your eye goes on to read this line, I know that I shall have already been exposed and dragged from my home, or as is more likely, for you know that my heart is weak, by lying with my tongue sealed forever in death. In either case, the time for suppression is past, and every word which I tell you is the naked truth, and this I swear as I hope for mercy. My name, dear lad, is not Trevor. I was James Armitage in my younger days, and you can understand now the shock that it was to me a few weeks ago when your college friend addressed me in words that seemed to imply that he had surprised my secret. As Armitage it was that I entered a London banking house, and as Armitage I was convicted of breaking my country's laws and was sentenced to transportation. Do not think very harshly of me, laddie. It was a debt of honor, so-called, which I had to pay, and I used money which was not my own to do it. In the certainty that I could replace it before there could be any possibility of its being missed. But the most dreadful ill luck pursued me. The money which I had reckoned upon never came to hand, and a premature examination of accounts exposed my deficit. The case might have been dealt leniently with, but the laws were more harshly administered thirty years ago than now, and on my twenty-third birthday I found myself chained as a felon. But thirty-seven other convicts, in tween decks of the bark Gloria Scott, bound for Australia. It was the year fifty-five when the Crimean War was at its height, and the old convict ships had been largely used as transports in the Black Sea. The government was compelled, therefore, to use smaller and less suitable vessels for sending out their prisoners. The Gloria Scott had been in the Chinese tea trade, but it was an old-fashioned, heavy-bowed, broad-beamed craft, and the new clippers had cut her out. She was a 500-ton boat, and besides her 38 jailbirds, she carried 26 of a crew, 18 soldiers, a captain, three mates, a doctor, a chaplain, and four warders. Nearly a hundred souls were in her, all told, when we set sail from Falmouth. The partitions between the cells of the convicts, instead of being thick oak, as is usual in convict ships, were quite thin and frail. The man next to me upon the aft side was one whom I had particularly noticed when we were let down the quay. He was a young man with a clear, hairless face, a long thin nose and rather nutcracker jaws. He carried his head very jauntily in the air, had a swaggering style of walking, and was, above all else, remarkable for his extraordinary height. I don't think any of our heads would have come up to his shoulder, and I'm sure that he could not have measured less than six and a half feet. It was strange among so many sad and weary faces to see one which was full of energy and resolution. The sight of it was to me like a fire in a snowstorm. I was glad then to find that he was my neighbor, and gladder still, when in the dead of the night, I heard a whisper close to my ear, and found that he had managed to cut an opening in the board which separated us. Hello, chummy, said he. What's your name, and what are you here for? I answered him, and asked in turn who I was talking with. I'm Jack Prendergast, said he, and by God, you'll learn to bless my name before you're done with me. I remembered hearing of his case, 
for it was one which had made an immense sensation around the country some time before my own arrest. He was a man of good family and of great ability, but of incurably vicious habits who had, by an ingenious system of fraud, obtained large sums of money from the leading London merchants. Ha ha, you remember my case, said he proudly. Very well indeed. Then maybe you remember something odd about it. What was that then? I'd had nearly a quarter of a million, hadn't I? So it was said. But none was recovered, eh? No. Well, where do you suppose the balance is, he asked. I have no idea, said I. Right between my finger and thumb, he cried. By God, I've got more pounds to my name than you've hairs on your head. And if you've money, my son, and know how to handle it and spread it, you can do anything. Now, you don't think it likely that a man who could do anything is going to wear his breeches out sitting in the stinking hold of a rat-gutten, beetle-ridden, moldy old coffin of a china coaster? No, sir. Such a man will look after himself and will look after his chums. You may lay to that. You hold on to him, and you may kiss the book that he'll haul you through. That was his style of talk, and at first I thought it meant nothing, but after a while, when he had tested me and sworn me in with all possible solemnity, he let me understand that there really was a plot to gain command of the vessel. A dozen of the prisoners had hatched it before they came aboard. Prendergast was the leader, and his money was the motive power. I had a partner, said he, a rare good man, as true as a stock to a barrel. He's got the dibs, he has, and where do you think he is at this moment? Why, he's the chaplain of the ship, the chaplain no less. He came aboard with a black coat and his papers right, and money enough in his box to buy the thing right up from kill the main truck. The crew are his, body and soul. He could buy him at so much a gross with a cash discount and he did it before they ever signed on. He's got two of the warders and Mercer, the second mate, and he'd get the captain himself if he thought it worth it. What are we to do then, I asked. What do you think, said he? We'll make the coats of some of these soldiers redder than ever the tailor did. But they are armed, said I. So shall we, my boy. There's a brace of pistols for every mother's son of us. And if we can't carry this ship with its crew at our back, it's time we were all sent to a young Mrs. Boarding School. You speak to your mate upon the left tonight, and see if he is to be trusted. I did so, and found my other neighbor to be a young fellow in much the same position as myself, whose crime had been forgery. His name was Evans, but he afterwards changed it, like myself, and he is now a rich and prosperous man in the south of England. He was ready enough to join the conspiracy as the only means of saving ourselves, and before we had crossed the bay, there were only two of the prisoners who were not in the secret. One of these was of weak mind, and we did not dare to trust him, and the other was suffering from jaundice and could not be of any use to us. From the beginning, there was really nothing to prevent us from taking possession of the ship, the crew were a set of ruffians, specially picked for the job. Sham chaplain came into our cells to exhort us, carrying a black bag supposed to be full of tracts. And so often did he come that by the third day we had each stowed away at the foot of our beds a file, a brace of pistols, 
a pound of powder, and twenty slugs. Two other warders were agents of Pendergast, and the second mate was his right-hand man. The captain, the two mates, two warders, Lieutenant Martin, his eighteen soldiers, and the doctor were all that we had against us. Yet, safe as it was, we determined to neglect no precaution and to make our attack suddenly by night. It came, however, more quickly than we expected and in this way. One evening, about the third week after our start, the doctor had come down to see one of the prisoners who was ill, and putting his hand down on the bottom of his bunk, he felt the outline of the pistols. If he had been silent, he might have blown the whole thing, but he was a nervous little chap, so he gave a cry of surprise and turned so pale that the man knew what was up in an instant and seized him. He was gagged before he could give the alarm and tied down upon the bed. He had unlocked the door that had led to the deck, and we were through it in a rush. The two sentries were shot down, and so was a corporal who came running to see what was the matter. There were two more soldiers at the door of the stateroom, and their muskets seemed not to be loaded, for they never fired upon us, and they were shot while trying to fix their bayonets. Then we rushed on into the captain's cabin, but as we pushed open the door, there was an explosion from within. And there he lay, with his brain smeared over the chart of the Atlantic, which was pinned upon the table, while the chaplain stood with a smoking pistol in his hand at his elbow. The two mates had both been seized by the crew, and the whole business seemed to be settled. The stateroom was next the cabin, and we flocked in there and flopped down on the settees, all speaking together, for we were just mad with the feeling that we were free once more. There were lockers all around, and Wilson, the sham chaplain, knocked one of them in and pulled out a dozen of brown sherry. We cracked off the necks of the bottles, poured the stuff out into tumblers, and were just tossing them off, when in an instant, without warning, there came the roar of muskets in our ears, and the saloon was so full of smoke that we could not see across the table. When it cleared again, the place was a shambles. Wilson and eight others were wriggling on the top of each other on the floor, and the blood and the brown sherry on that table turned me sick now when I think of it. We were so cowed by the sight that I think we should have given the job up if not had been for Prendergast. He bellowed like a bull and rushed for the door with all that were left alive at his heels. Out we ran, and there on the poop were the lieutenant and ten of his men, the swing skylights above the saloon table had been a bit open, and they had fired upon us through the slit. We got on them before they could load, and they stood to it like men, but we had the upper hand of them, and in five minutes it was all over. My God, was there ever a slaughterhouse like that ship? Prendergast was like a raging devil, and he picked the soldiers up as if they had been children and threw them overboard, alive or dead. There was one sergeant that was horribly wounded, and yet kept on swimming for a surprising time till someone in mercy blew out his brains. When the fighting was over, there was no one left of our enemies except just the warders, the mates, and the doctor. It was over them that the great quarrel arose. There were many of us who were glad enough to win back our freedom, and yet who had no wish to have murder on our souls. It was one thing to knock the soldiers over with their muskets in their hands, there was another to stand by while men were being killed in cold blood. Eight of us, five convicts and three sailors, said that we would not see it done. But there was no moving Prendergast and those who were with him. 
Our only chance of safety lay in making a clean job of it, said he, and he would not leave a tongue with power to wag in a witness box. It nearly came to our sharing the fate of the prisoners, but at last he said that if we wished, we might take a boat and go. We jumped at the offer, for we were already sick of these bloodthirsty doings, and we saw that there would be worse before it was done. We were given a suit of sailor togs each, a barrel of water, two casks, one of junk and one of biscuits, and a compass. Brenda Gast threw us over a chart, told us that we were shipwrecked mariners whose ship had foundered in latitude 15 degrees and longitude 25 degrees west, and then cut the painter and let us go. And now I come to the most surprising part of my story, my dear son. The seamen had hauled the foreyard aback during the rising, but now as we left them, they brought it square again. And as there was a light wind from the north and east, the bark began to draw slowly away from us. Our boat lay rising and falling upon the long, smooth rollers, and Evans and I, who were the most educated of the party, were sitting in the sheets working out our position and planning what coast we should make for. It was a nice question, for the Cape de Verde were about 500 miles to the north of us, and the African coast about 700 to the east. On the whole, as the wind was coming round to the north, we thought that Sierra Leone might be best, and turned our head in that direction, the bark being at that time nearly hull down in our starboard quarter. Suddenly, as we looked at her, we saw a dense black cloud of smoke shoot up from her, which hung like a monstrous tree upon the skyline. A few seconds later, a roar like thunder burst upon our ears, and as the smoke thinned away, there was no sign left of the Gloria Scott. In an instant, we swept the boat's head round again and pulled with all our strength for the place where the haze, still trailing over the water, marked the scene of this catastrophe. It was a long hour before we reached it, and at first we feared that we had come too late to save anyone. A splintered boat and a number of crates and fragments of spars rising and falling on the waves, showed us where the vessel had foundered. But there was no sign of life, and we had turned away in despair when we heard a cry for help and saw at some distance a piece of wreckage with a man lying stretched across it. When we pulled him aboard the boat, he proved to be a young seaman of the name of Hudson, who was so burned and exhausted that he could give us no account of what had happened until the following morning. It seemed that after we had left, Prendergast and his gang had proceeded to put to death the five remaining prisoners. The two warders had been shot and thrown overboard, and so also had the third mate. Prendergast then descended into the tween decks, and with his own hands cut the throat of the unfortunate surgeon. There only remained the first mate, who was a bold and active man. When he saw the convict approaching him with a bloody knife in his hand, he kicked off his bonds, which he had somehow contrived to loosen, and rushing down the deck he plunged into the afterhold. A dozen convicts who descended with their pistols in search of him found him with a matchbox in his hand, seated beside an open powder barrel, which was one of a hundred carried on board, and swearing that he would blow all hands up if he were in any way molested. An instant later, the explosion occurred though Hudson thought it was caused by the misdirected bullet of one of the convicts, rather than the mate's match. Be the cause what it may, it was the end of the Gloria Scott and the rabble who held command of her. 
Such, in a few words, my dear boy, is the history of this terrible business in which I was involved. Next day we were picked up by the brig Hotspur, bound for Australia, whose captain found no difficulty in believing that we were the survivors of a passenger ship which had foundered. The transport ship Gloria Scott was set down by the Admiralty as being lost at sea, and no word has ever leaked out as to her true fate. After an excellent voyage, the Hotspur landed us at Sydney, where Evans and I changed our names and made our way to the diggings, where among the crowds who were gathered from all nations, we had no difficulty in losing our former identities. The rest I need not relate. We prospered, we traveled, we came back as rich colonials to England, and we bought country estates. For more than twenty years we have led peaceful and useful lives, and we hope that our past was forever buried. Imagine, then, my feelings, when in the seaman who came to us I recognized instantly the man who had been picked off the wreck. He had tracked us down somehow, and had set himself to live upon our fears. You will understand now how it was that I strove to keep the peace with him, and you will in some measure sympathize with me in the fears which fill me. Now that he has gone from me to his other victim, with threats upon his tongue, underneath is written in a hand so shaky as to be hardly legible, Meadows writes in cipher to say H has told all. Sweet Lord, have mercy on our souls. That was a narrative which I read that night to young Trevor, and I think, Watson, that under the circumstances it was a dramatic one. The good fellow was heartbroken at it and went out to the Tarai tea planting, where I hear that he's doing well. As to the sailor and Beddoes, neither of them was ever heard of again after that day on which the letter of warning was written. They both disappeared utterly and completely. No complaint had been lodged with the police, so that Beddoes had mistaken a threat for a deed. Hudson had been seen lurking about, and it was believed by the police that he had done away with Beddoes and had fled. For myself, I believe that the truth was for the opposite. I think that it is most probable that Beddoes, pushed to desperation and believing himself to have already been betrayed, had revenged himself upon Hudson, and had fled from the country with as much money as he could lay his hands on. Those are the facts of the case, Doctor, and if they are of any use to your collection, I am sure that they are very heartily at your service. We've always said here that sometimes that the past will come back and bite you if you're not careful. That's why you should use a good VPN, like Surfshark. Enter BBJ in the promo code and it will do absolutely nothing, for this is not a sponsored read. would like to remind you that we are always on the hunt for great stories like this to feature on the show. And if you know of any, please email me, bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel full of selected stories from the podcast. Go to tiny.cc slash bedtime. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a Buy Me a Coffee link on every page and post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>